talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, often called PTSD. And I would like to start by sharing an experience I had where someone told me about PTSD and they opened up to another person about it. And that person responded with, well, that only happens to soldiers, to returning soldiers. And I said, well, no, it doesn't. Soldiers certainly can have severe PTSD, but PTSD can happen to anyone. And so as we usually do on this show, let's start by breaking it down. What exactly is post-traumatic stress disorder? So it's a really good question. And I think the term PTSD has been taken, you know, by what you might call pop psychology, and it's used often inaccurately. And certainly PTSD as we understand it in war has existed well since there have been wars. So that's uh-huh. been a, yeah. a very long time. But I think we called it, you might have called it shell shock or something yeah, else. I think so. And it wasn't until 1980 that at least the DSM came out with a diagnosis, you know, that they called PTSD. And it was a bit controversial at the time. But I think it was the VA who mm-hmm. really got uh, the ball rolling because and I believe it was about the soldiers coming back from Vietnam mm-hmm. you know that the, they were seeing all these symptoms and so they really started looking into it and they were the they were at the forefront of really f- figuring out what this is labeling it and the symptoms of PTSD so that you know your friend who said oh only soldiers can get that i mean maybe they're caught back in the 1980s uh-huh. yeah but if you look at ptsd there are two types that we would talk about now one is okay. just ptsd and then the other would be what we call complex ptsd okay. and the main difference between those two so ptsd might be a one time event so for instance maybe you got mugged uh, a rape a one time rape would be that uh, car accident and okay. the common theme i, I should have uh, back up a bit the common theme with ptsd is you really have to feel like your life is in danger or this extreme bodily harm okay is yeah. is an important part of it and so if you think about a one time car accident you know, that could certainly cause some PTSD, a rape, mm-hmm. uh, sexual assault of any kind, uh, even natural disasters. So mm-hmm. if you're in, let's say you're in a tornado or something or flooding, then that would certainly cause PTSD. So complex PTSD, however, is, for instance, childhood sexual trauma, childhood sexual abuse that typically goes on for an extended period. So it's trauma that exists over a longer period of time. And it could also, I think it would also include multiple traumas, which sadly, there are people certainly who come into my office who've experienced multiple traumas, they've experienced Mm -hmm. multiple sexual assaults, or, you know, uh, even multiple, say, car accidents, then I think it, it falls into that other category of uh, complex PTSD. Um, Interestingly, the diagnosis like the DSM doesn't recognize complex PTSD. Hmm. And the there is a diagnostic classification system that the World Health Organization has called the ICD. And okay. they have just included in ICD 11, their complex uh, PTSD diagnosis. I think that from my perspective, as a therapist who might treat someone mm-hmm. who has PTSD, 
I don't know that the diagnosis makes that much difference. It might as far as an insurance form, but just knowing what type of traumatic events happened. So, you know, you would know, well, it's multiple or or it existed over a period of years. That's an important thing to know Mm -hmm. the, um, the title or the diagnosis from my perspective, doesn't make a lot of difference as far as even how you treat it. Yeah. But I think it's a, I think it's a pretty good distinction between one time event and then a real history of multiple events. Yeah. And, and the important part is knowing that you're having a reaction and that something is, is going on is, is the important part. Right. And so the reactions are very similar. I mean, there are some differences in uh, the complex PTSD that we can go over. So as far as symptoms of PTSD, Mm -hmm. uh, they fall into several categories. One is memories or intrusive memories. And so recurrent or unwanted distressing memories about the event. And and so these are going to be similar from uh, complex PTSD and regular PTSD. Upsetting dreams and nightmares. That's one that's very, very common. I had a Mm -hmm. gentleman in my office who was uh, on the police force. Mm-hmm. So he saw terrible things, you know, yeah. over the years and wakes up almost every night uh, with upsetting dreams or nightmares. So severe emotional distress. I think that uh, avoidant uh, behaviors, trying to avoid thinking or talking about the traumatic event, avoiding places or activities. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, I, I knew someone who was in a car accident mm-hmm. one time and they couldn't get in a car for a very, very long time. And so that's that avoidant behavior that would certainly fall into that category of PTSD. Negative changes in thinking or mood, like negative thoughts about yourself or other people, hopelessness about the future, being detached from families and friends is certainly a common one. I think that uh, changes in physical and emotional reactions like trouble in sleeping, which kind of, you know, connects with the uh, nightmares, trouble mm-hmm. concentrating. Okay. So uh, not being able to focus is a big one. Uh, people who have PTSD or have those traumatic events, for instance, find it very difficult to go to school because you have to mm-hmm. study, you have to focus. Children who experience traumatic events, mm-hmm. you know, any type of trauma or abuse, I think they're often misdiagnosed. They It looks just like ADHD mm-hmm. because okay. the very first thing to go in children with trauma is they can't focus. Okay. And so teachers see that, uh, or even parents might see it, and they mm-hmm. think, oh, this, this child has ADD or ADHD, when really there's probably a traumatic a- event that's happening. So that kind of gives you an idea of the different types of Uh, symptoms. But I think in one of the differences with uh, complex PTSD is I think the withdrawal and the negative thoughts about self are probably more profound. And I think the reason for that is if you, you know, we might do an episode sometimes say on childhood trauma or abuse, but Mm -hmm. that ongoing abuse that a child experiences changes their brain. I mean, it literally is changing the where their brain is being wired. And so you can imagine that they approach adulthood and they're going to have some very strong negative self-perceptions in there. Uh, this is almost universal with children and abuse is that they tend to internalize it 
and what I mean by that is they say, oh, it's something about me. Yeah. And instead of realizing, oh, this is an adult who's doing mm-hmm. this to you. And so in that way, that complex PTSD, they're going to have more profound negative self-concept mm-hmm. about themselves than say someone who had who was in a car accident. Right. You can see how those are very different. Yeah, their their brains are just they're developing still uh, right. as as a youth. And when they suffer a traumatic event particularly repeated abuse, it makes total sense that it would re-hardwire their brain and in a negative way. And I think it would also affect these children as they grow up to become parents. Yes. I think we see a lot of, I think, helicopter parenting Mm -hmm. in in parents who were abused as a kid. They, They can't stand the idea of their own child being in danger and wanting to wanting to protect their child. That's a really good point, and I I do see that often. And so the parent, because of their experience as a child, they become anxious. Mm -hmm. And often it happens very much the same time. Like if their child gets to that age at which they experience Mm -hmm. the abuse, that's when it really comes up for them. And so the helicopter parenting, you know, you want... You want, on, on some level, your children to feel safe in the world. And, right. you know, it's tough. The last year has certainly been tough uh-huh. with COVID. Yeah. Uh, but we want them to ha- be safe and have fun and be able to go out and make friends. And and so you're absolutely right, Liz, that yeah. uh, if you've experienced your own abuse, then you tend to keep your kids closer to you, which mm-hmm. then what it does is that transfers to them the anxiety and they think, oh, you don't even have to say this, but they're thinking, ah, the world is not that safe. Mm-hmm. So I have to be really careful. And that's the environment in which they grow up. Yeah. And, and I think for all parents, that's got to be a delicate balance to let them have, tough. let them have fun, let them be a kid. But at the same time, they have to understand that strangers, stranger danger, <laughs> strangers are dangerous. It is a really fine line that parents yeah. have to walk. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know that it was as tough when I was uh, raising my children all older, but I know that, you know, with my grandchildren, you know, my daughters do struggle with that idea. It's you know, a, how free time. do you let them be? Yeah, yeah, yep. So we talked about different types and different severity. So I know in terms of severity, it it can range from really severe, like we think of soldiers who are having flashbacks and in that moment they're in it. And then, you know, even minor, I had relatively minor experience with, with PTSD. We were driving home and my daughter was about six weeks old. So part of this was also postpartum depression for me was, was part of it. I was dealing with that as well. And we're driving and uh, on this, on a snowy road and my husband spins off and we end up turned around in the median and the car tipped on its side and then went and went back down on, on four wheels, but it it briefly tipped and then went back down. And for weeks and even a couple of months afterwards, every time we got in the car and it was snowing, I was convinced that we were going to crash. I mean, there would be, my husband would be driving and I would be white knuckling thinking that that stop sign that is 15 feet away, we're going to crash into that stop sign in my mind. That's what's going on. And then I was also terrified of my husband getting into an accident as well. He was really good about being supportive and 
and not taking it as controlling when I would ask him, hey, can you just text me to let me know when you get there just so I know you're safe? Or can you text me when you're leaving so I so I have an idea just so I don't worry? And he was really good about supporting me and being willing to do that for me. So let's talk about severity of PTSD. So like a lot, maybe all mental health issues, it exists on a continuum. And so, you know, your example is a really good example of how that is a traumatic event because you're on a, you're on a road going who knows how fast and mm-hmm. that is very dangerous and you have no idea what the other cars are going to do. So that really fits into that category of PTSD, but it's a one-time event and right. over time, those symptoms fade. Mm-hmm. Now, we come into life with what we call temperament and we think that temperament is inherited and part of temperament is uh, some people have what we might call a more neurotic personality. Now that word I think is often misunderstood. And, but from our perspective, here's what neurotic means. It's just having the uh, propensity to more, to be more anxious uh, to be to be more depressed, to have more negative feelings. And we probably all know people who would fit into that category. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're a bit more negative, but I, it's not just uh, that would be the nature or the, the nature part, but nurture part mm-hmm. is that our life experiences mm-hmm. can also lead us to, I guess, develop a more, what I'd call neurotic personality, meaning more being more prone to anxiety and depression. So I think certainly the severity of what you feel to, uh, as far as PTSD certainly depends on the severity of the event. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, we could bring up different events, war, I can't even imagine what that would be like to be in a combat situation, right? Um, Just so terrifying and noisy and loud. And, but, you know, uh, sexual assault, and mostly Mm -hmm. women, certainly the majority of sexual assaults are inflicted on women, but I can't even imagine how, how terrifying that would be. And you would really feel for, you know, bodily harm or your safety. Mm -hmm. And, there's also this strong element of feeling like you have no control over the situation, which is often true. Yeah. So again, you're in the car, you're spinning, there's nothing you can do. I mean, I suppose you hang on and hopefully you've got your seatbelts on. If a tornado comes through your area, you can get underground, but in a lot of ways, there's not a lot you can do. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with a sexual assault or being in war. And so that element of being out of control is really um, a a big part of the severity. Prior experiences, are you more anxious? Are you more, you know, prone to depression? Mm -hmm. I think that if there is some, there are some issues with, say, substance abuse, you know, excess drinking, drug use, if that's already existing, I think it can make it worse. So yes, it, it exists on that continuum. I think if if we go back to complex PTSD and let's just use the example of childhood trauma or childhood sexual abuse, mm-hmm. I think the longer it goes on for many uh, people who deal with that as an adult, that can often be a lifelong process of getting over it. It is mm-hmm. very, very tough to change yeah. that, you know, because as we spoke about earlier, your brain is actually being rewired. And I think over time, you can 
dampen those symptoms, you know, make them less. But it's very tough because I've seen clients, uh, you know, for years who are dealing with that uh, really severe childhood abuse, and it's very, very hard. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about treatment options and PTSD. I would imagine that you would treat it differently than, you know, generalized anxiety and depression. Okay. Let's take a quick break and we will be right back. Hi there, my name is Maya Acosta, and I'm the host of the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions podcast, where I explore ways that we can optimize our health. I learned about the field of lifestyle medicine, which uses evidence-based approaches to prevent, halt, and in even some cases, reverse disease. These are lifestyle modalities, such as using certain foods as medicine, using exercise to reverse disease, managing our stress, and even getting adequate sleep. Join me and the amazing people that I get to talk to as I set out to learn how taking better care of ourselves can help us both improve the quality of life and enhance our longevity. Let's get started. Well, I think that, you know, with PTSD, there are certain, there are certainly drug options. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the SSRIs, I think the most common drugs that one might take, Zoloft, Paxil, Prozac, okay. Effexor. Okay, um, So the SSRIs are used. Um, now, uh, this I, I like to mention some of the uh, things that are on the horizon. The VA, interestingly, does some interesting work with uh, new therapies, mm-hmm. and they've been experimenting with what is called MDMA, which okay. popularly is called ecstasy. Uh-huh. So it's, you know, it's a drug you might have at the raves, but in mm-hmm. small doses, they're, they're finding that there is actually a lot of really good results with that. Okay. I've, I have heard some other work about psilocybin, which is mushrooms, the ingredient in, in mushrooms. Okay. And so I think that, uh, you know, in the future, there may be some uh, new and even more effective therapies. But what gives me hope is the VA is the one who is one of the groups that really is behind uh, figuring out what are some more effective therapies. And I think that's a great thing they're doing. So you have the drug option. And then uh, you have what I call, I think we should call probably the big three, because we're probably okay. going to mention these big three every time. Uh-huh. We talk. Yeah, yeah. Good sleep. Yeah. So lack of sleep makes everything harder. I've said that before, Mm -hmm. good aerobic exercise and some sort of good meditative practice. Now, the term that most people are familiar with is mindfulness, but for me, they're synonymous. So having some sort of mindfulness practice or meditative practice. And so the reason I'll just go over briefly again, I think we talked about it last week or the week before that if we want to change our brain, and rewire it. Those are the three things that we know really work. So you have that. And then I think any drug therapy, as we mentioned last week, should be paired with uh, some good psychotherapy. So Mm -hmm. good talk therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, what you call CBT, mostly uh, people know it by that name. And the idea is that over time, you help the change the negative thought patterns that are associated with the traumatic event. Mm -hmm. And so that's the advantage of uh, doing talk therapy. I think the other thing that's really helpful is any group work. 
And there are, I think, one of the benefits of COVID and being in the quarantine is there are a lot more online groups that are popping up. Mm -hmm. And what that means is you can be anywhere in the country and probably find a pretty good support group uh, around PTSD or complex PTSD. You could probably even find a pretty good support group based on the particular trauma that you're having. And I think group work is really important because if you are, you know, you're experiencing all these things and it's so easy to feel like you're alone. Yeah. And what group work does is it lets you know you're not alone. And it also gives you the idea, oh, the, you know, this other person is doing this and that worked for them. And so it's really a, a good process. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is what is called EMDR. Okay. So EMDR is um, the rapid eye movement treatment. Now I don't do that. I haven't been trained at it. Uh, I think three, two or three of my colleagues have okay. a lot of people do it. The idea behind EMDR is it's supposed to reduce again, the negative emotions mm -hmm. associated with the trauma. I think that it's somewhat controversial. Some people don't think it works. Uh, people who've experienced say it does. I think it's what, you know, if it works for you, great. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody. I think that people should know that. But if okay. you want to try it, there are plenty of practitioners out there okay. who do it. And a couple of my colleagues, one of them is, is doing it online, which oh, I didn't okay. realize one could do that online, but I know mm -hmm. he's doing it online. So even now, uh, with the the pandemic, you can still experience, I think you can probably still find a practitioner to do EMDR. And can you talk us through what that looks like and how it works? So I think, it, so it started, I mean, this has been around for a very long time and it started with tapping. It evolved over time. So tapping, accessing both sides of your brain. Okay. And, and, but then what it evolved to more is uh, your eye, the rapid eye movement and the therapist is moving typically finger in front of you, you know, okay. going back and forth, but mm -hmm. that, so that's the component, the say physical component to it. But at the same time, you're being asked to recall uh, okay. the particular traumatic event. And so it's a combination of the two. As, mm -hmm. as far as I understand it, I probably botched that description uh, just because I haven't done it. Right. And I, if, if I have clients who want to do it, then I have colleagues I can refer them to. Okay. But there is a lot of, a lot of people who really believe it uh, works. And I've okay. seen, I've certainly experienced people who believe it doesn't work. Okay. Yeah. And I would imagine that that's got to be hard to and and in dealing with PTSD, I think one of the things you have to be willing to do is is to face it, which I think can be incredibly difficult because it's it's a traumatic event and you don't want to relive it. But would you say that you have to relive it to some degree in order to move past it? Well, I don't know that I would call it reliving it. I think it's mostly about reformulating the negative emotions associated with it, okay. which to me, I don't know that that's reliving it. So it's not the same as say systematic desensitization. It wouldn't be that it's that 
put it, you know, the cognitive behavioral therapy is really helping one to take the event and to figure out how do you have mastery over that? Like, what are the positives in it too? You know, what did you learn from it? What did you get out of that? Because often with negative events, there are some positives. And so it's just, you know, how do you change the way you think about Mm -hmm. the event? I think that's important. And so if you think about EMDR, my understanding of it, that's really what it's supposed to do. Uh, I think you can do that with regular talk therapy as well. Okay. The, the thing with, um, here's what I found with some therapists, is if you're dealing with an adult who had childhood trauma, mm-hmm. and childhood sexual abuse, there are a lot of therapists who are really uncomfortable going back to that. Yeah. And so, you, and I've seen many clients who said they've seen other therapists and when they bring it up, the therapist tries to steer them away from it. Interesting. Because I think the, the therapists themselves are uncomfortable with it. Yeah. It's I think an ugly I, thing. Right. And so the group that I work with here, we worked at the family support center where, where that's what we did. Mm-hmm. And so we're all very, very comfortable with that particular issue, which a lot of people have, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that childhood trauma that they're working out. So I think it's important to find a therapist who's comfortable and maybe has some experience in dealing with childhood trauma, if that's what the issue is. Yeah. But I think the, the other thing to be aware of is that uh, self-medication. So using either drugs, I think mm-hmm. cannabis right now is pretty popular as a self-medication. Uh, alcohol certainly has a long tradition mm-hmm. of being used as self-medication. I understand the reason that people do that because that, that anxiety is so severe mm-hmm. and those negative thoughts and the nightmares and the um, flashbacks is another, I don't mm-hmm. think I mentioned that specifically as a symptom, but actually <clears throat> being awake and having that flashback of the event is pretty common in mm-hmm. some severe PTSD. I understand wanting to medicate. I think long-term that's not, a healthy or viable solution because yeah. it makes relationships really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we know about, I think any healing is often in the context of a loving, supportive relationship is really the best place uh, to do that healing, mm-hmm. you know, whatever that emotional healing is. And so I think the alcohol or the drugs make that e- even more difficult but I think when we, when you have, if you know someone, say who's dealing with substance abuse issues, often it's about that, and I think we mm-hmm. need some compassion to be yeah. able to help them understand what it is that's going on and and move beyond that to maybe some more effective treatment options. Yeah, it, it certainly wouldn't be helpful to just attack them and call them an addict, but I think you, there's a there could be a kind and compassionate way to say, hey, I'm, I'm worried about you and how can I help you would be much more effective than just attacking them. Right. And so I think we have to be willing to understand what is this person's history mm-hmm. and not just assume. I think it's so easy to put that label of addict. Oh, you're mm-hmm. just an addict. Mm-hmm. Now, it's true there are some people who are addicts without mm-hmm. that underlying trauma. I'm not saying everybody who uses alcohol 
or drugs, uh, you know, has some underlying trauma. That's not the case, but it is often the case. And so we need to understand that if we really want to help them. Well, and just like with someone who has PTSD and addiction, it's, it's a mental disease. Addiction is, it's, it's something that needs compassion. And I know a lot of people think, well, and I, we're kind of going a little bit off of PTSD, but I think with addiction, it's important to talk about that people think, well, why did you, why did you choose? Why are you choosing to do that substance? You're choosing to be, you chose that. And it's like, well, no, not, that's not necessarily true. Uh, Addiction. It's, it's very much in your in your brain. And it's something that's often not controlled. I mean, most people don't choose to get seriously injured and need pain medication. And a lot of times that's all it takes one time and, you know, and, and they're hooked or they don't understand that if they start just socially or casually drinking, they don't, how are they supposed to know ahead of time that it's going to cause an addiction in their life? But I think if you th- if you think of veterans who have been in uh, active war zones, yeah, it's often they're using substance to, you they know, substance dead. abuse is the way they yeah. cope, and so mm-hmm. it's a coping mechanism. I, I again, I've not been in the military, I've not been in a war zone, but I can, mm-hmm. I can't even imagine what that would be like, and then yeah. to come home and have the triggers, uh, to have the flashbacks, have the nightmares. Mm-hmm. I think I'd want relief as well. So I I get it. It's just that we have to help them figure out a healthier way. Yeah. And, and like you said, compassion, I think is the underlying thing when you're helping anyone is just to be compassionate. So let's take a minute and talk about what you would do if you are with someone who is having a flashback let's say you're there and in the moment something happens and all of a sudden someone's having a flashback. What do you do? How do you help that person in that moment? So I think that the word grounding, often we use that that, a lot, but you know, to say, okay, you want to be grounded in the here and now because a flashback is really about having that intrusive memory of, you know, the, the event that happened maybe years before when really you're sitting right here, you know, in the living room. And mm-hmm. so I think touch is an important one. Okay. I think gentle touch, it's going to be different for every person because right. you know, there might be some trauma where the touch would be, would accentuate the flashback. Mm-hmm. And so I think just ha- having a knowledge of what the trauma was is going to be helpful but i think touch holding um just being in front of the person and getting them to look at you in the like here i am here we are your feet or touch grounding uh, i think the way we got that word is it's actually put your feet on the ground and feel the ground under you right now which okay. is yeah. um in you know or or you know, hold on to the chair, feel your body, the weight of your body mm-hmm. and what's going on in your body. So often there's going to be a, like with a, a any type of anxiety response, like a flashback, 
their breathing is going to change. Okay. And so if you can help them calm their breathing and mm -hmm. go to a deep breath instead of a shallow breath, almost guaranteed it's going to be a, sh a more uh, shallow type mm -hmm. breath. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, you want to help them get a deeper breath. I think that if you're with someone who you know might have a flashback, talking about it beforehand. Okay, yeah. So preparing, mm -hmm. what shall we do if this happens? What's going okay. to be effective? And also uh, practicing, like I, I with my clients, I practice, uh, show them what the shallow breath is and what a deep breath is so that they know. But I think preparing is okay. really yeah. uh, very helpful thing to do before and and you know what that does for the person who might experience the flashback it gives them a little bit more sense of control because one of the awful things about flashbacks is it just you might be triggered by something like a oh like a typical one if you're in a war zone you know and you hear a big loud bang out mm -hmm. in the street and it feels very threatening to you yeah. and so just talking about what might be the potential triggers okay. that are going to lead to a flashback, I think it's really helpful because you're essentially preparing yourself mentally for, you know, how do we approach this? And so if you're with someone, mm -hmm. knowing what you're going to do is really important rather than going, oh my gosh, what, what shall I do? Mm -hmm. You know, you're caught off guard. Don't be caught off guard. It's going, it'll likely happen depending on the severity of the trauma that the person experienced. So my understanding of panic attacks, this sounds similar to how you would help someone who's experiencing a panic attack is, is grounding. And it sounds to me like what you're trying to do is you're trying to get them to focus on something other than what they're currently feeling. And we know a lot of people have said, just telling someone to calm down doesn't ever actually no. work. No, and, and from my experience, it just infuriates the person. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> you know what? If they could calm down, they would. <laughs> they right? would have calmed down. Right. Uh, they don't need me saying to them, calm down. Uh -huh. What they need are some really specific things. So going back to the breathing, you know, with any, uh, you mentioned panic attacks. With any panic attack, people who describe a panic attack, um, it, their breathing gets really tight. Mm -hmm. The chest okay. gets tight. It's the reason that um, I don't know what the percentage is, but a lot of people who show up at a, an ER thinking they're having a heart attack, mm -hmm. there's a huge percentage of them are they're, what they're having is a panic attack. Right. And it's because of the restricted breathing. Mm -hmm. So the best thing you can do is go over with the person. What can you, what can we do together to help you change your breathing? That is, the, I think, one of the best things to do mm -hmm. uh, for panic attacks. Now, here's the other thing about panic attacks. It's often, it's not like you go from this point and then all of a sudden you're in a panic attack. It builds. And so okay. for a lot of people who've experienced it, it that uh, sense of unease and I don't know, it probably anxiety starts to build. And so if you get it before it gets to be too big, that's that's mm -hmm. the better way to approach it. Heading it off. Yeah. Yes. Heading it off. 
but that might not be uh, necessarily what you find in your partner. If you're, you know, with someone who you find they're in a full-blown panic attack, then Mm -hmm. you're going to handle it in a different way to help them calm down. I think in, in panic attacks, often if it's a, I think the touch is, can be very calming, soothing Mm -hmm. touch.